Welcome to another edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford. I'm your host, and I'm also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. If you've been following the podcast or the Facebook group, you know that we've kicked off a series called Raising the Whole Child. And as a parent of two, two young boys, I created this series because I know that parenting youth athletes is hard, and it requires much more than what happens between the uh, lines on the soccer pitch. So in recent shows, we've talked to um, mental toughness specialists, meditation specialists, uh, physical uh, PT specialists. And today we want to dig deep into, an, into two areas that are hot button issues in youth sports. And I brought a, an expert on to weigh in and give us some factual information and some sound advice, not to be confused with medical advice, but some sound advice that hopefully we can apply and some of it in our own individual lives. So what are those two hot button issues? Overuse injuries within youth sports, especially with our younger athletes and early sports specialization, especially when we start looking at US early sports specialization as it compares to the rest of the world, what are they doing? What are they not doing? How should we define it? What outcomes are we looking for? What are some of the pitfalls? But I will be honest, as a parent of a competitive athlete, I have become somewhat disillusioned with some of the parent advice we give because, and I talk about this on a podcast, it's either a moral lens to it or it's too general. I can't do anything with it or it doesn't, and what I call, and the folks who listen to us, it doesn't reconcile some of these timeless assumptions that we know are true, right? If you work hard at something, you will be good at it. If you practice longer, you will be, there's a relationship between the amount of, there's a positive correlation between the amount of time you spend doing something and uh, how good you are with it. And then we know there's diminishing returns and all that kind of stuff. So the advice a lot of times doesn't reconcile this in our minds. So we're left to think, okay, what do I do? What do I do? So for folks who rec who follow the podcast, you know that I am an open book. I'm going to share some things that I do with my boys. <laughs> no judgment zone. And then I want to hear sort of where I'm maybe putting them at risk long term because many of these injuries. They're not traumatic, right? They're, they happen over years of, and this is me assuming this, over years of um, repetition or over years of overuse. And that's one of the things that I'm actually fearful of as a, as a father of two young boys. So that's enough about me. That's enough of the intro. Joe, I brought in Joe. I'm not even going to mess up your last name. Joe is a medical professional. And Joe, I'm going to have you introduce yourself in New York City. Okay. And he and his colleagues and the folks he worked with in the organization have written a very important book that one of our members posted as a good reference guide. And you know, I just said, hey, you know, I ain't got time to read the whole book yet. I am gonna read the whole book, but let me speak to the people who helped either put the book together or have knowledge about this field. And so I reached out to the hospital and they were very gracious to send Joe over. And I'm not even gonna to try to introduce you. I want you to introduce yourself and uh, introduce your hospital and what you do. And then tell us about the book as well. And we'll post it again for our listeners who are interested in getting a copy of it. So Joe, take it over. Sure, thanks, Neil, uh, and and thank you for the opportunity to to talk with you and, and all of the folks in your network. Um, my name is Joe Janoski, and uh, by training, I'm a physical therapist and athletic trainer uh, for the better part of um, three decades, uh, taking care of of athletes at all levels, from youth on up through the professional level. Um, and I work now at Hospital for Special Surgery, HSS, uh, in New York City as part of our Sports Medicine Institute. And I work with uh, two of our co-medical directors, Dr. Jim Kindernecht and, and Dr. Robert Marks, whose book, The ACL Solution, that uh, you referenced. Um, our, 
our collective mission at, at the Sports Medicine Institute is obviously to, to take care of, uh, of anyone who uh, needs medical care, of course, you know, and sports related injuries are a big part of that. But uh, part of our, our broader mission is to help people avoid sports related injuries when, uh, whenever possible. We're seeing more and more young athletes uh, in our physicians' offices and, and in our operating rooms, and that's really concerning to us. So uh, while we're happy to help people who need it uh, after they're injured or, or need uh, rehab, um, our, our, our additional focus is on preventing that from happening in the first place. Okay, so thank you so much for joining us and I really appreciate it. And I hope for our listeners, you'll see our cameras bounce on and off and that's because we have an internet problems. I hope we can wrap this up today and the internet holds up. So let's talk broadly speaking first. Let's talk broad. If 30 years ago, what are you seeing in terms of trends? If I was to uh, pinpoint 30 years ago, the number of youth athletes showing up on the operating table or whatever um, issues they have, however, whatever metrics you guys use to measure it. And today, what are you seeing in terms of the number, the ages, the types in general, and what is giving you guys a sense of uh, alarm? Uh <laughs> It's a, it's a broad question. It's a good question to start with because um, advances in science um, from, from diagnostic tests like MRIs uh, to, to other, other healthcare uh, technology gives us a, a much better ability to determine uh, and, and quantify uh, sports-related injuries. So uh, between 30 years ago and now, you know, we can diagnose injuries much better. Um, we can diagnose uh, and and determine the severity of an of an injury much better. It, it was about 30 years ago that, that I tore both of my ACLs, but um, I didn't have access to diagnostic tools like MRIs that that we have now. Um, so my diagnosis was I blew out my knee. I didn't have surgery. I did whatever I needed to do to get back to playing sports, and and I went on with my life. And so. Uh, the, the advancements in diagnostic testing and, and um, quantifying the severity of injuries has propelled us forward. And with that has come the ability to really determine how many people are, are having these injuries. I would have never been counted among the people with ACL injuries because I wasn't diagnosed with it. Um, so with all of those advancements now comes our ability to count uh, much better. Uh, and with that ability to count much better comes increasing numbers. So as we see the years go by, the rates and the numbers of injuries just continue to climb in, in, all, uh, in all varieties. Certainly people have uh, drawn attention to the rapid rise in concussions because in part the ability to diagnose them better. Um, but ACL injuries, UCL, Tommy John injuries in baseball pitchers, um, all of these sorts are, are increasing, but what we also see across the board is, is significant increases in overuse injuries. So these non-traumatic injuries that occur over time. Um, so what's concerning and what keeps us up at night is the fact that all of these things um, are, are moving in a, in a direction that um, isn't good. Okay, so you said something that's interesting to me. So yeah, I grew up in an age where people use the term you blew out your knee. You actually don't hear that often anymore because of the advances in technology. But are you, so then what happens if you tear your ACL and you don't get treatment that you had today? What, how do you get better? Uh, well, you may not, right? Uh, even without surgery, um, the, the goal of a surgery, like an ACL reconstruction is to restore the normal function of the knee as much as possible so that you can run and cut and change direction and change speeds um, it, as close to uh, your ability uh, before you had an injury, right? With the, with the native ACL intact. So the goal is to replicate that, get back to that structural uh, support as much as possible. 
if you don't have surgery, um, you know, your chances of doing that are just significantly less. Um, some people can cope really well, you know, if, if it's not a complete tear, let's say, um, you may be able to regain a good bit of your mobility and, and function. Uh, if you, if you uh, maintain a, a high level of strength and, and um, endurance, uh, your, your ability to cope with, with uh, an injury is, is good. But what's really troublesome over the long term is the uh, effects of arthritis and, and the effects that having a joint where the mechanics have been altered um, really suffer over the long term. So what, what we're finding is that um, over, over a couple decades, uh, even, even in folks who've had reconstructive surgery, the development of arthritis uh, is, is, is pretty noticeable and pretty prominent, but um, it, it's even worse among those that uh, don't have surgery. So uh, the, the concerning uh, factor here is that even if you do everything right, you have a great surgery, you have great rehab, and you follow all of the recommendations from the medical folks, um, there still may be long-term consequences that, that arise. Okay, okay. And that makes sense. So you could, quote unquote, blow your uh, knee out, recover, but not get to full functionality as you had before, which in an elite athlete, that's the difference between making a team and not. For the average athlete, average person, it may be I walk a little bit slower than I used to, and that's just how I am. I got a bad knee. Okay, so that makes sense. So let's now this let's dig into some specifics. I wrote a very controversial uh, article <laughs> based on nothing. I always tell people based on Facebook research, where I said ten misconceptions of early sports specialization, and one of the things I argued was that the medical profession defines early sports specialization in a very narrow um, way. And they have to do that because they're doing control groups. And they are effectively saying, if you only do this sport and you exclude everything else, you run the risk of having these types of problems. And then my argument goes on to say, but parents in general define sport specialization as my child has a favorite sport and they do the other ones for fun and all that kind of stuff. Right. So first of all, define early sports specialization as you understand it. Let's do that first. Define early sports specialization. Sure. So uh, it's a it, it's an interesting concept to to discuss because um, there isn't one accepted definition. There's many, um, and so depending on who you ask. Uh, you're going to get a different answer, right? And so you've already you've already determined that if you ask a parent what their version of early specialization is, it's going to be very different than a medical professional. But I'll tell you what, if you ask multiple medical professionals, they're also going to give you differing answers about what early sports specialization is. We have to consider things like what age does early mean? Is 10 early? Is 18 early? I'm not really sure, right? It depends on who you're going to ask. And then, you know, the broader uh, and more important question is what does specialization mean? Does specialization mean that it's all or none? So you do one activity at the exclusion of all others? Does it mean you do a lot of activity, but there's still a little bit of something else? It's, there's a lot of gray areas. And again, uh, the, the, um, the answers you're going to get about what technically early sports specialization is uh, are going to vary based on who you ask. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot though. So for you, if I, you, Joe, early sports specialization. So I've told you what it means. So for me, when I think of early sports specialization, I think of a and we'll talk soccer because this is a soccer podcast sure. I think about youth players in what they call professional academies they yep. practice three to four days a week and they play a game on the weekend and they're in a professional environment and I don't mean 
the developmentally inappropriate to the kid. I mean, it's run by people who effectively want to turn a profit on these players. That's a professional right. environment. Right. That's what I, how I define an early sports specialization child. Now, then anything else they do athletically for the most part is recreational. So a lot of times in Europe, you'll hear a, a person say, yeah, they, they play tennis and basketball and all this kind of stuff in PE and in gym, but soccer is what they do. That's how I define it. And the reason I want to be clear, I don't even know why I want to be clear about that, but I, I just really want to relate to the realities of what parents have. And I don't want to put you on the spot to say, um, there's one way or the other way, but I'm basically saying I come to you as your younger brother and, and you have, a, and I have a, and we have a son, I have a son and I say, I want to sign my son up, your nephew up for 10 months of soccer. It's three days a week of practice, one game, maybe even two sometimes on the weekends. And we're going to do I-9, which is a big franchise here, we're going to do flag football in the winter for about eight games. And then we're going to do um, some basketball with the YMCA in the summer, and that's another eight games. But overlapping all that is that 10-month program. I mean, what are you going to say to me? Are you going to say, whoa, 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 that's, that's, that sounds like a lot. No, uh, I'm going to say, uh, when we talk about early sports specialization and, and volume um, as you know, what, what people are mostly concerned about, we can't um, measure what we, what we, we, we aren't defining, right? So when we talk about early sports specialization, we have to define it in some way to then give us an ability to measure it and study it and create some outcomes based on our studies, right? So folks have had to come up with a definition of early sports specialization in order to put some parameters, right? Some boundaries around what that is in order to then study it. So if we're going to put a boundary around uh, early sports specialization that is uh, uh, a child plays one sport or participates in one type of activity at the exclusion of all others for 10, at a minimum of 10 months out of the year, that may be one definition of sports specialization, right? So now we can, start, we can say, let's find groups of kids who meet that criteria and compare them to kids who don't meet that criteria. And now we've got ourselves a, a sensible research project and we can compare the health outcomes or the injury rates or whatever the metric we want to study by comparing those two groups of people, right? Kids who may meet this definition of early sports specialization and those that don't. Um, but really what it comes down to is do the kids within that group have health risks that are more severe or different than those that, that are not in that group? I think that's really the question everyone's after. And we, so we've made these boundaries around what sports specialization is in order to get to that answer, if, if that's helpful. Um, so uh, it is. But let me cut you off and say this then. Oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, no, you, you go ahead. Uh, okay, I paused it for a second because the internet was going out. So I guess what I'm trying to reconcile is this. Can my child participate in a 10-month soccer? Well, actually, let me take a step back. If I could wave a magic wand, the powers that be would create a competitive program. And I'm defining competitive as grouping kids who are kind of on the same levels with good coaching that was much shorter than 10 months. That's, that would, that, that, I would love that. As a parent, that's not the reality. So then I'm wondering, okay, 
I got a choice, either straight up wreck. There is some challenge, but it's not competitive at the level that someone like my son is, or do the 10 month program. Mm -hmm. But my son is only 10. And I know it's hard, but I'm just thinking when people talk about overuse injuries, are they, what are, how does the 10 month program fit within for the next 10 years of my child's life, they're going to be on a soccer pitch in a structured environment four to five days a week. This worries me. I don't know how to, what to think about it. Yeah, it's, it's a, it should worry you, right? It's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough, um, it's a tough topic. And so I think, you know, we have to think a little bit beyond just the activity itself, right? Is there anything inherently bad about playing soccer in any way as a goalie, as a forward, right? Whatever the case may be, is there anything inherently bad about playing soccer? No. If we look at the CDC's guidelines for physical activity for children, they want kids to play uh, and be physically active 60 minutes per day, every day of the week, right? So if, if, if you choose to do that by playing soccer, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, you're, meeting, you're meeting the guidelines for physical activity. Where, where we need to expand our thought process here is on how do we manage the load that we're, that we're participating in, right? So if, if kids are playing soccer three or four times a week and, and playing in a game, it's not that is that amount of activity bad, it's what are we doing to mitigate or to alleviate the load, that workload on young bodies, right? That's the question. So if all you do is play and you don't rest and you don't eat right and you're not hydrated and you don't um, do strengthening exercises or flexibility exercises to support musculoskeletal health, well, now is that's why we have a problem. So it's not the soccer activity that's the problem. It's all of the other pieces that go into supporting physical and emotional uh, health for, for the player. So it's load management is the is the that people throw around now that's the more important piece that's where we need to focus let's not worry about you know is 10 months of soccer the troublesome part if that's the standard program and it is in many parts of the US and around the world that's okay but how do we manage the workload for the participant to support that amount of activity yeah, I'm laughing at myself when, when you say the workload, I'm thinking about my parents and then I'm thinking about myself as well. Like this is not even something, <laughs> not even something I thought about. So, which is scary because one of the things I'm, one of the things that worries me as a product of the seventies, we learned a lot about movements, our bodies, you know, how to run in PE class. And if I can remember it, that means it was much later in my life uh, early adolescence than my son who was 2000, born 2010. And so we didn't get introduced to those types of workloads until much later. So this does worry me because I laugh, I laugh at my, my son when he first started playing soccer, he used to run with his hands like this down. I just, and the coach said, don't worry about it. I see it all the time, kids grow out of it. But now that you've mentioned it, I'm like, okay, I'm asking him to be on the soccer field four days a week, and he doesn't even know how to run. Right. And right. so and that's the problem. Right? I, is the, is the yeah. running four days a week a problem? No. <laughs> right. But the managing that workload and putting forces and, and stress on bodies that aren't prepared for it is the problem. Right. So, so if you take, uh, I, I like to use this analogy, if you take an old jalopy and you think that you're going to drive from LA to New York City um, and you're going to do it straight through and you're just going to put the pedal to the metal and go, guess what? You're not probably not going to make it, right? You, if, you, if you've got a people that can't manage the workload that you're asking of it, bad things are going to happen. So if you've got an, a, a, a jalopy, you know that you've got to stop every so often and, and take care of it and rest and do all the things you need to do in order to finish that trip. 
And so that same principle applies to young bodies, a 10-year-old body who hasn't quite mastered running yet, you know, sprinting and changing speed and changing directions. You have to manage that workload accordingly. Is running bad, playing soccer bad for a 10-year-old kid? Absolutely not. But if they're going to do it at a level like you're describing, we now need to manage that workload, right? They need to do some strengthening exercises. They need to eat right. They need to be hydrated. They need to have the right shoes and the right equipment. They need to sleep uh, as much as, as is recommended for, for kids that age. So that's, that's the practical piece that parents need to focus on. Not so much, um, you know, is playing soccer for 10 months out of the year a bad thing. It's how do we manage the workload? Um, I think another good way to think about it is, is people that are working from home now, right? Adults, the, the average workday got extended because of this COVID pandemic and people working from home. So how do we as workers, adult workers, manage that workload, right? We put all of these strategies in place. Um, we come up with designated end times. We take a walk. We get a massage. Well, all of these things, we eat right. We get enough sleep. So the same principles apply to, to uh, young kids. Okay. So when, thank you for that. So when we start talking about overuse injuries, all right, so let me throw three different sports. So in, another, in the article also said, hey, not all sports are created equally. Let's talk about soccer. Let's talk about something very specific. And again, I'm throwing myself on the sword. Uh, so I work with my sons. I have a train. I created a training app. So I'm biased in this regard. But they practice what I would call low, um, low impact ball work at home. And in addition to that, my older one, he practices juggling quite a bit and he can juggle some ridiculous amount of time. But I worry about that sort of repetition and long-term arthritis or whatever. I worry about that. And then I'm gonna use another analogy just so we can broaden the conversation. Let's say that a dad came to you and said, hey, I have my son shoot 500 jumpers a day. You know, he, he has to shoot 500 jump shots a day and he's 12. And then we can throw baseball, which I actually, based on no medical information, but I throw pitching uh, into a slightly different category than even these other ones where you're using slightly larger muscle groups and you can weigh in on that. So when you start thinking about repetitions, no trauma, no trauma, just doing the same motions over and over and over to build that mastery, how should we be thinking about the risk factors when it comes to overuse injuries? And I gave three examples, juggling a soccer ball, shooting a jump shot, just a random example. And then we'll talk about pitching and throwing secondly. Yeah, they're all, they're all really good examples of where overuse injuries can, um, can, can pop up. Um, so, you know, from a, from a physiologic standpoint, I don't want to be super technical, but, uh, where the soft tissues in your body, like a muscle or a ligament or a tendon, uh, connects to the harder tissues like bone, those are the areas where uh, the body is susceptible to an overuse injury, right? And so um, the, the UCL is a ligament in the elbow. And so when you pitch a lot, you end up with a lot of force on that ligament that's not designed to be there. Right. If you um, run, let's say, uh, in soccer, and uh, you you continuously are cutting and changing speed, changing direction, there's a lot of pressure on your patellar tendon, right, where your kneecap is, uh, as the tendon attaches to the bone. Again, it's soft tissue, and it's uh, absorbing the amount of force required of it, you know, to do that activity. So, over and over again. While more may be better from a skill mastery standpoint, more may not be better from an overuse injury standpoint. We need to kind of find the, the middle ground where you're getting enough repetition to create skill mastery, which is important, but not so much that you're putting excess force on tissue, soft tissue, uh, that's sensitive uh, to, to um, forces uh, and, and developing these uh, overuse type injuries. So uh, I, I'm not giving a specific number because 
there is no specific number, right? We can't say juggle the soccer ball a thousand times and that's okay, but a thousand and one, you know, you're over the line. Um, it depends on very specific physical qualities of the child, of how much does the soccer ball weigh? What size is the soccer ball? What surface are you doing it on? There's a, there's a, a whole host of factors that would determine, you know, what amount is too much. But boy, you know, you know it's too much when an overuse injury happens. It's hard to go back the other way and say, you know, at what point should I have stopped, um, you know, in, in order to prevent that from happening? That that's a tough one. Um, but again, you know, there's a there's a gray area between developing mastery of skill and moving into this area where overuse injuries occur because you put too much force on soft tissue. So then when we start thinking about two things, the mental side of it, so is he going out there practicing juggling because dad is forcing him and he's stressed out versus he um, he wants to do it? I think there's an, there's an element there. And that also goes into the structured play versus the free play and the psychology there. But then in terms of early symptoms, like do you see situations where child or patient was complaining about this, parent ignored it and it got, got worse and it could have been reversible without any, and I'm thinking more about the non-traumatic overuse injury. I'm throwing a baseball. I used to throw it 50 miles an hour. I start throwing it 40 miles an hour, no matter how hard I try, that was an opportunity to say time out. Is that, does that happen? Yeah, all the time. And it happens in kids, it happens in adults, right? Um, I think it's humans is where it happens. If you're a human being, there's a tendency for us to do this. And we, we sometimes miss warning signs, right? An overuse injury doesn't typically just occur. Um, and one day you think, oh, wow, I have this overuse injury. It builds up over time. There, there's signs that, that, that indicate something is coming. Um, an overuse injury is usually... Um, on this continuum where you may start to feel a little discomfort. There may be some swelling, there may be some tightness, uh, but our human nature, whether it's, uh, whether we're children or, or adults, um, is it's okay. I want to do whatever this activity is more than this is bothering me, right? And so we push on and then it gets worse. And then, you know, we if we still wanna do the activity more than it's bothering me, um, I'm going to keep going. At a cert at certain point, um, we have to stop, right? There, there is no way to continue. Uh, so there is warning signs. There's, there's indications along the way, and that's where we need to listen, um, you know, to our bodies, to, to whoever is doing the activity and giving feedback. That those are important things to think about um, when trying to decide how much is enough, how much is too much, um, you know, gauging the feedback and, and getting uh, a good sense of um, what's happening afterwards is, is really important. You know, um, the 10% the rule, I can't help but think of when uh, people are training, uh, let's say, to, like you said, uh, to run a marathon uh, earlier. Um, you don't just go from uh, a three mile run to a 20 mile run um, and expect anything good to happen, right? That has to build up over time. So if you're pitching, if you're playing soccer, if you're doing any of those types of physical activities, 10% uh, increases at a time until you can adjust to that workload is, is probably a good fundamental rule to follow. Yeah, and I'm going to dig into, uh, and we're almost ready to wrap up. And Joe, I really appreciate you your time. And guys, we're having a conversation, a deep conversation about overuse injuries and um, early sports specialization and some of the risk factors around that and some of the ways that parents can mitigate it. But Joe, you've been gracious in that. And I understand that there's a fine line between trying to offer a recommendation because each situation is different. We got some guiding principles that I have uh, internalized and what we want to do with this type of content is just put it out there and let folks chime in on what they're doing. And then it's easier than to have a more detailed conversation one-on-one. -on -one. Sure. So let's take a big, 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 big step back, which I actually forgot to do. When we first talk, the role of sports or what the role of sports should be in our 
children's lives. Like, what are we even trying to get out of this thing? And then I'm going to yeah. then challenge us to reconcile how we can get those goals and then any of these other crazy parent goals that I'll talk to you about in a second as well. So what's the role of sports? I forgot. Let's just recalibrate this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's it's good. I think it's good to talk about here after we've discussed all these details, right? What What is the point of all this? What the heck are we doing here, right? Why are, why are we signing our kids up to play sports? If we answer that question, it helps us this foundation in order to go on and talk about things like specialization and overuse injuries and all those other things but if if we ask kids historically why do they want to play sports they they want to be with their friends they want to do something that's fun um they they you know it's something other than school uh and so you know all of those factors being with their peers enjoying themselves finding you know fulfillment in, in an activity that's physical is where their their minds are at. A lot of studies have have shown us that. Um, if we ask parents, you know, why do you sign your kids up? We we did a study at HSS a few years ago, and as we were um, working on building the Healthy Sport Index with the Aspen Institute, and parents invariably told us that um, they wanted their kids to participate in sports because of the health benefits associated with it, whether those were physical or mental. Um, sports provide an opportunity. They are a strategy for health. Um, and, and that was the, the, the number one reason. And it makes total sense. But we don't frame sports. We don't evaluate them based on that, right? How many parents think about uh, a sports season, let's say, or a year's worth of, of sports participation in terms of how much healthier is my child now? Uh, there, there, there isn't a, a great, there isn't an assessment tool that allows them to do that. So when you ask a parent, "Hey, how did how did your uh, summer soccer season go?" Uh, they'll they'll usually you know kind of give you this answer about, "Oh, it was great. Uh, my son or my daughter uh, made a lot of good friends. Uh, they won ten games, right? Because that's an easy metric to to put out there. But but what really we should be doing is is evaluating the sport experience did participating in sports lead to improvements in health right are they able to run further is there is their fitness better did they lose weight uh, did they socialize and and gain social skills did they learn how to be a leader how to be a teammate um, did they learn discipline right uh, all of those things are the the metrics by which we should be framing sports participation Sports participation should be the means to an end, not the end. The end shouldn't be my kid played soccer, period. The, the evaluation should be my kid played soccer, and now here are all of the things that happened as a result of that. So I think if we reframe sports participation as the means to an end, we're in a much better position to evaluate risks and benefits than we are if sports is um, simply the end. I love the way you put that. And we got about 10 more minutes. We're going to wrap this up. And it's actually given me, as you were speaking, I was reflecting on why I signed my child up for youth sports, which I wrote about in a, in a blog. And then just sort of checking myself, like, am I really looking for those types of outcomes? And it's a very difficult thing, actually. I did a podcast on dreams versus expectations, <laughs> where I basically argued that I have all these lofty dreams for my kids, and I, don't, I try not to share with them, but then there's some realistic expectations. I try to reconcile this. And see, here's the thing. I'm going to go on a limb and say, even if your goal is for your 10-year-old son, and this is where I talk about it in dreams versus expectations, is to one day give you the real MVP speech. Dad, thank you for everything you did for me. You are the real MVP. Even if that's your goal, you don't get there if you're not raising a healthy, happy, you know, uh, thoughtful, well-mannered, respectful, you know, mentally tough child that you're not stressing out. You don't even get there. So we're actually, we're actually rowing in the same direction. And I think this conversation uh, it, it's helpful for me, but it has become very divisive because it's been positioned to us as an either or. Right. Whereas really like, listen, if you're playing 
a trip, if you go to your mechanic and you tell him you're planning a trip to California, he, he or she is going to tell you, well, you need to be thinking about these other things in addition to your morning, than what you would think about with your morning commute. You need to check the oil, right? right. You need to check all your fluids because you're not just going to work now. You're going all the way to California. And, and, and oh, by the way, do you really need to go to California? <laughs> like, really? Do you really need to drive to California? If you do, this is what you need to do. But you got to ask yourself, is that the vacation that your parent kids, or can you get it here? And can you get what you're trying to get at Myrtle Beach? And if and the question is, no, I can only get it in California. In this case, a 10-month program, then you definitely need to evaluate these risk factors. And that's what I'm getting from you. And, that, and that's what I'm getting. And that's what I'm hearing. You know, do kids need to be on the pitch 10 months out of the year? Probably not. But if you're going to go down that road, you better be considering, you know, sleep, nutrition, strength, uh, what, what uh, you said, um, load management, right. mental side of them. Are they stressed out? All that kind of stuff you really, really, really care about because you're now entering into an area that in Europe, oh, by the way, only 1.001%. I know you see a lot of kids in these academies, but you're only talking about 30 kids in London that are in Arsenal, right? So right. this is, that right. would be my soapbox. Not, yeah, not, no, it's great. Not every field. It, it's great. It's great. Uh, I think, you know, having a plan uh, to manage, you know, whatever the expectations are um, is important. But the first question you have to ask is, is there a plan? Is there a plan for managing load for a child who's, say 10 years old and wants to play soccer for 10 months out of the year. Is there a way to accomplish that? And if that answer is yes, then you better figure out how to do it, right? You have to put all of those pieces of the plan in place, but that's not to say there's always a plan, right? Should, maybe there isn't an appropriate time for maybe uh, an eight-year-old to play soccer every day of the week, seven days a week for uh, 10 or so months out of the year. There may not be a plan because it's just not possible uh, for that to actually happen without negative, uh, without a negative impact on health. So the first question is, if, figure out what you want to do and is there a plan to manage that? And if that answer is yes, then you need the plan. You need to figure out all, all the pieces of the plan. If there isn't a plan, no one's going to stop you. Go ahead and do it, but just understand that nothing good is going to happen. And then you have to deal with all of the fallout. And that's often what happens. Uh, that, that's often the case that you know we end up seeing kids in doctor's offices and, and operating rooms. Um, but just to uh, touch on one other point real quick, when we reframe sports as the means to an end, the the oftentimes the amazing byproducts of that are a sports scholarship in college, a professional contract, um, other amazing opportunities that happen, Olympic uh, uh, appearances, right? Those should be and have historically been the byproduct, right? So if you do all of the pieces of the plan, according to the plan, you do those well, then here are the things that happen, right? You have all these great health outcomes. Oh, and by the way, the, the exceptions, I think in your blog you wrote that the exceptions also then have these other things that happen. Scholarships, professional contracts, Olympic appearances, right? Those are the byproducts. I, I'm not sure that I agree that, uh, and I'm not suggesting you're saying this, but I'm not sure I agree with parents who's, who make that the goal. Um, it may be the result, but I'm not sure you should aim there um, as the goal. I think you, we need to aim at a different part of the target. Absolutely. So in the last five minutes we have, I also want to dig into traumatic injuries versus what, we're, what we have been talking about with overuse. The reason I spent so much time on overuse injuries is because this is a nebulous and gray area where well-meaning people can just not know. Sure. But I also make an argument, I don't know if I made it in the blog, but in general, that what I call in America, our gaming program. So 
the amount of times a kid is competing at the highest level, I feel that I feel as if that's gotten a little bit out of whack. Again, I'm throwing myself on the bus. This weekend, I think I said this to you, my 10 year old participated in a tournament in Georgia playing against kids who were three years older, bigger, faster, stronger. We left after work on Friday, had to be on the field by 10. Then you got two games. And oh, by the way, it was a five and a half hour drive. And then you had a, and then you slept in the hotel, the whole family. So how much rest you're getting, we'll see. And then you have another game on the Sunday. And if they had won and they would play another game. I think on a micro level, you know, life has to happen. But I worry about that when you start thinking about, okay, three, four times a year, constantly, constantly, constantly. And then, oh, by the way, there are kids, many, no judgment, who play on multiple teams. So they're having this experience. And I just worry about that. Does those, does the fatigue, the mental stress, the whatever, the, the, the need to have to perform, does that also impact things that we can we might think is random, like a traumatic injury, but maybe it's not? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And, and there's a lot of evidence uh, in the literature that suggests that is exactly what happens. If, if, um, if we look at soccer specifically, there, there are a lot of investigators who have found that injury rates increase um, at the end of each half. Uh, so as players become fatigued, traumatic injury rates, things like ACL tears, uh, those rates of injury tend to increase with fatigue. So you can imagine um, sleeping in a hotel, five and a half hour drive, three games in, you know, under a 48 hour period, I think you described. So I'm not suggesting that anyone who does that's going to get hurt, but the risk of of a traumatic injury happening is probably significantly higher um, in, in for someone who's doing that than for someone who's not. Um, so yeah, tons of evidence out there to show that fatigue and hydration and mental acuity um, uh, you know, factors into that whole fatigue thing, of course, as well. Um, all of those factors play a role in the occurrence of traumatic injuries, things like concussion and ACL. Okay, Joe, so this has been a wonderful interview. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give my closing uh, remarks and I want you to give your closing remarks. If you can give, and when you close your, your name, your um, the hospital and the book as well that was written, and we'll post all that in the Facebook group. So again, I am part of the this process, so there's definitely no judgment from me. As a matter of fact, I have a training company, so you obviously know there's no judgment. But if I'm being as honest as I can, I feel like the average American parent is buying more soccer than they need and, they're in there and giving their child more soccer than they want. And I'm going to throw this out here for public consumption, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring some of our PT professionals, some of our coaches, some of our club directors to talk about load management and how they um, try their best to work with some of the parents to understand this. But the obvious issue is, you know, they don't know what all parents are doing at home. Our club sends recommended nutrition guidance. They have mandatory rest periods. Do the parents listen? Probably not. So, I, but I do want to get some recommended guidance from our clubs and some of the things that they're doing. But that is my biggest fear. And I'll go on record saying that in America, we're buying more soccer than, than we need and more soccer than our kids want. And we just have to do the best we can on a micro level to at least make sure our children are happy, healthy, well-fed, um, nutritiously, and we try to mitigate some of these uh, risk factors. And oh, by the way, don't try to keep up with the Joneses with every single thing you do as it relates to sports. Because if you can answer those questions, that, what did my child, is my child more mentally tough? Are they more determined? Are they happier? Are they healthier? None of that has to do with 
the tournament that they participated in last weekend. They, you can achieve those goals. And oh, by the way, they be be, can even be a better soccer player without the trip to California. So that's my soapbox here. I've gotten some stuff to take away that's going to definitely help me reevaluate what I'm doing at home. I hope our parents have as well, even if it just gives us pause to assess why are we doing this in the first place? What are we trying to achieve in the first place? Have we asked our child, are you happy? You know, these types of things. Have we asked them, what do they want to get out of this experience? One thing I did, um, because I had a guest on who said they didn't when they were kids, they didn't free play enough, is I've started organizing more and more free play opportunities in my local community. And my kids love it. And so, you know, just, you can't solve the whole world's issues in, at one, but you can do things to help improve the life of your, your family and your children. So Joe, I'm gonna give you the last remarks on this and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us on the Anytime Soccer Training Podcast, uh, The Inside Scoop. Yeah, uh, you know, certainly my my pleasure, uh, and and thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, as I said at the beginning, my name is Joe Janowski, and I'm the director of the sports safety program at, at Hospital for Special Surgery. Our sports medicine institute is, uh, of course, very focused on taking care of people who need our help after an injury. But uh, a big part of our mission is is helping people to avoid needing medical care for sports injuries in the first place. And so this, this conversation has been, a, 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 I hope, a big help to people uh, in, in avoiding injuries and, and needing medical care. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, the, the, the big takeaway that I would say for parents is just, as you said, think about what are you doing here, right? What, what is the role of sports um, and let's evaluate the, the participation experience based on this expectation that sports should lead to good health outcomes. And let, let's let all of that other stuff be the byproduct that happens when we focus on the actual uh, reasons behind why sports are important. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Inside Scoop. I'm your host, Neil Crawford, and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. Feel free to drop some questions. Joe and I, Joe has been generous to respond to my emails. If you have a specific question you'd like me to forward him, the, I'm sure I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm sure you'll reply back, hey, with these resources. I will also ask you for some parent-friendly articles or resources that can help us think through this. You dropped a few here. Uh, I don't have time to go to medical school, but if there's a, <laughs> if there's a blog post or here or there that you think would be something that would be helpful for us to read, then... Uh, then I'll definitely uh, share it with the group so that we can get some more sound information. So Joe, thank you so much for uh, attending the Inside Scoop. I really, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Neil.